The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So now we're in uh, the home stretch again in the book of Acts. We're, man, we're rounding third. That's going to be the only baseball analogy I will use because I hate baseball. Uh, but th- we're rounding third in this series on the book of Acts. And uh, the reason, once again, if you're, if you're new here, that, that we're looking at the book of Acts, which, by the way, is the, really the story of the beginning of the Christian church. It's a history of the beginning of the Christian church. And so if you're here, it's really important for us to look at the book of Acts and see what is true Christianity. And this is important for, for you you, whether you're a, a, a believer or non-believer, you may be like a, a casual bystander. You're like, hey, I'm here just checking out what Christianity is about. Or you might be a skeptic. I'm so glad that you're here because the book of Acts shows us what true Christianity is. So you can see what it is that God has actually called the church to be and what Christians are called to be. And if you are here and you are a Christian, whether you're a new Christian or you've been a Christian for a long time, it's a good a reminder and refresher and lesson for us to see that this is what God has called us to be. Uh, Acts is our source document as a church so that when we, because when we say Christianity, when I say the word Christianity or the word church, each of us in here picture any number of different things, right? But the, the book of Acts, which is our source document for the beginning of the Christian church is what defines what the church is and what Christianity is and what it should be. Uh, We've been around for 2,000 years. And so anytime anything's been around for that long, there's going to be a lot of mission creep, a lot of like things that that carry the flag of Christianity, but it isn't actually what God has called us to. And so that's why we're looking at Acts to see what we are actually called to be. That's why it's so important. And at this point in the book of Acts, it's the, the history of the church is really zeroing in on this man named Paul. He's the apostle of Jesus who's been planting churches all around the Mediterranean and he is now uh, has headed to the city of Jerusalem, telling his friends that God has called him there and that he knows that trials and afflictions await him in Jerusalem. But he knows he's supposed to go there and he also knows he's supposed to go to Rome. He was led by the Spirit of God here. That's the important thing that we need to keep in mind here is that Paul didn't just happen to go to Jerusalem. He was led by the Spirit of God to Jerusalem. All the way along, people were telling him, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and you're going to be bound and you're going to be beaten. And he, or you're going to end up being beaten. And he knew that. And yet he still went because God had called him to go. And so over the last two weeks, we've been looking at that. Two weeks ago, we saw how it took Paul had to uh, live in and operate in spiritual courage in order to obey God's call to go to Jerusalem, even though trials and afflictions awaited him there. And last week, Justin Kramer talked about how when Paul was in Jerusalem, how he had to speak and witness boldly for Jesus and how we have to do the same thing in our life. And now we're wading into what must have been an incredibly frustrating part of Paul's Life. Here he is. Just get the picture with me. Here he is. He's Paul, the apostle of Jesus, who we now know would write the majority of the New Testament. He's been planting churches all over the Mediterranean, doing amazing works of God. He's seeing 
thousands of people come to Christ. He's seen incredible miracles happen. This has been Paul's life. And now he has gone to Jerusalem. And actually, as he was doing nothing, he was arrested and tried in front of the Jewish council. And now, after being there, he's going to be mistreated, misjudged, judged unfairly, and then forgotten. Have you ever felt that way? That life hasn't treated you fairly? That people around you haven't judged you fairly? Maybe you felt forgotten? Paul was literally forgotten, literally treated unfairly, literally misjudged. What we're going to see here in this passage, we're going to kind of zoom in and out of it because it's a big passage. It's all of chapters 23 and 24. What we're going to see is we're going to see how Paul was able to draw in this incredibly frustrating time where he was mistreated, misjudged, forgotten, how Paul was able to draw from a hidden strength. Paul was able to draw from a hidden strength in order to do what God had called him to do. And you and I can have access to that same source of hidden strength to live the life that God has called us to. We're going to see three things that allow us to gain strength the way Paul gained strength. We're going to see that we gain strength from knowing God's mission for us. We gain strength from knowing that God is active on our behalf. And we gain strength from the hope of our resurrection. We're going to see that we gain strength from knowing God's mission for us. We gain strength from knowing that God is active on our behalf. And we gain strength from knowing the hope of resurrection. First of all, we gain strength from knowing that this is God's mission. Whatever this is, this is God's mission for us. So once again, let's look at the look at the big picture of Acts chapter 23 and 24. We're going to zoom out and zoom in to see this source of hidden strength for Paul. Here's the big picture. Paul's in Jerusalem, and as he is uh, arrested, he's trying to uh, he's trying to uh, make a case for himself why he should not be arrested. And things get so contentious as he is. Uh, as he is standing for Christ in the middle of Jerusalem, the Jews who are opposing him, that the Roman tribune, who is the commander of the Roman forces in Jerusalem, has to come into and break up this religious fight, take out Paul, and he puts him in custody in the Roman barracks in Jerusalem. And the, this Roman tribune does that in order to, so that a, a mob doesn't break out, to protect Paul's life and to figure out what the heck is going on here. And the next day, he brings Paul before the council once again. He says, all right, we're going to do this orderly. Now, you guys tell me what's going on. And they start to say what's going on. And Paul stands up and he says, here's the reason I've been arrested is that because he knew that this, this sort of like inner squabble inside the Jewish hierarchy between this group called the Sadducees, who were the people in power. They didn't believe in really the supernatural. They didn't believe in resurrection and angels and the, anything really spiritual in life. They kind of lived by the letter of the law. And then you had the Pharisees who believed strictly in what the Bible said and also believed in resurrection and the 
and then the supernatural. And so when Paul says, hey, here's why I'm put on trial here, because I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. And he knew what that would do. Man, they go crazy. The, all of a sudden, they forget all about Paul. And the Sadducees and Pharisees are fighting again. And once again, the Roman tribune has to break up the fight and pull Paul away and arrest him in the barracks and put him in the barracks. And as he has him there and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do, uh, overnight, Paul's nephew happens to overhear that the Jews are plotting to kill Saul. In fact, call, Paul, sorry, to kill Paul. In fact, the, some of the Jews make a pact together and they say, we shall not eat again until Paul is dead. And so the nephew runs to Paul and tells them about, Paul tells Paul about what had happened and Paul sends him to the tribune. And when the tribune hears about this, he ends up sending Paul overnight with a huge armed guard to Felix the governor in Caesarea, which is a nearby town, which is the port town or port city for Jerusalem, which is where the uh, local Roman governor, his headquarters is. And so the tribune sends under heavy armed guard Paul to the tribute to the governor saying, Hey, you figure this out, Mr. O Governor Felix. I am in over my head. And so uh, Felix, the governor, says, Paul, you hold out until uh, your accusers come and we'll figure out what we're going to do. And so five days later, the accusers, the Jews from Jerusalem, come to Caesarea, sit with Felix, the, the governor, and they say, Hey, this Paul, he's a troublemaker and he has been making trouble all over the world. That's the section that Carolyn read for us this morning. And Paul stands up and says, he basically makes his argument saying, no, I'm not a troublemaker. I've been, uh, I'm, a, I'm actually believing in the fulfillment of the promises that we Jews have been waiting on for ever, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I believe he's the Messiah, the promised one that we have all been waiting for. And so what they're really concerned about is I am on trial again, he says, for the hope of the resurrection from the dead. Felix doesn't really know what to do with this religious squabble that's going on that Paul is caught up in. And so Felix keeps Paul in custody with him, gives him some freedom. And for two years, every now and then whenever he thinks about Paul, he'll have him come in and they'll have a discourse together. And he'll say, all right, go back to your, to the, to prison. And he leaves Paul there And he doesn't know what to do so much with Paul so that whenever he is being uh, supplanted or, um, or replaced by the next governor, whose name is Festus, an unfortunate name. Wouldn't that just be terrible to have like, hey, Governor Festus, like it's not just... So he, he appears before Festus. He, when Festus comes in and replaces him, he just leaves Paul in prison and says, Festus, he's your problem now. And that's where this passage ends. As Paul is waiting... Totally, things are totally out of his control in custody under the authority of the Roman governor in Caesarea. Now, what we see through this whole section of Paul's life, again, it's a couple of chapters, it's a long section, but it's two, over two years of Paul's life where Paul is misjudged, mistreated, and forgotten. What we see is a regular, that we see Paul is able to regularly draw from a hidden source of strength. First of all, because he knows that he's on God's mission for his life. He knows he's on God's mission. We see this happen in verse 20, in chapter 23, verse 11. This is after he uh, has the 
appears before the council and there's a big riot. The following night, verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage because I still have a mission for you to fulfill. First of all, we see the place that Paul is drawing a, a source of hidden strength from is this idea that he is about God's mission. And for you and I, a place for us to draw a sense, a source of hidden strength for us to live the life that God has called us to is to know that we are living God's mission for our life. Now, what we're talking about is God's mission for you, not some half-baked personal version of what that mission is. You and I can draw no assurance, no source of strength from simply thinking that God's in control and I'm doing my own thing and God will somehow uh, fulfill all my desires and dreams and he will take care of me. We're talking about living God's mission for our life. For the believer in Christ, if you are a Christian, your deepest ambition is to live God's mission for your life. That is the deepest ambition of the Christian. It's It's the prayer that God glorify yourself in my life. And if we are, if that is not the, the tenor and the song of our heart, then there are one of two things going on. One is we're not a Christian. We might think we're a Christian and we go to church and we carry the label, but if the the source, the deepest song of your heart is not, hey, God, glorify yourself in my life no matter what that looks like, no matter where that takes me, no matter what that is going to involve in me, no matter what it takes me to give up or to put down for you, God, you be glorified in my life. If that's not the deepest song of your soul and your heart, then maybe you're not a Christian. Because what happens when we become a believer is we are born again to a new hope. And at the core of who we are, our desire changes from self-seeking to God-seeking. Now, we know there's lots of layers on top of that, right? As Christians, we keep forgetting. And that's the other thing that could be going on is that that's not the, that's not the song of your heart. That's not the theme of your life. God, glorify yourself in me, whatever that takes. Then maybe it is that you're looking for or worshiping, looking for value or worshiping something other than Jesus. It's that has an idol has snuck into your heart where you're looking for value or purpose or pleasure from some other place from him. And if you're struggling there, God, I, I, Randy, I don't really know if what you're saying is the, is the song of my heart. I don't know if it's the theme of my life. God, glorify yourself and me. Let me be about your mission. Then the place to start is to simply be honest about that. Be honest about that with yourself and be honest about that with the people around you who do love Jesus. And just say, I don't think this is the tenor of my life. I don't think it's the theme of my heart. And as you own that, let God bring you to repentance. Or maybe even to faith. This song of my heart, this theme of my life being God's mission above all other things. Like Paul could have lived 
any other kind of life than this kind of life. This is the last time in his life that we know about that he has had any sort of freedom before this arrest. And he walks willingly into chains. And he doesn't know, but he's not going to be free ever again in his life. And he's going to end up, from according to Christian tradition, dying a martyr's death. And Paul said, God, your mission and your glory is more important than my comfort or my pleasure or walking a path that I fully understand. Our, whether that is our song, the theme of our heart is a barometer of where our heart is with God. We gain strength from knowing that this is that we're living God's mission for us, but it has to be His mission for our life, not our half-baked version of it. But also, it is our mission as well. God, if you are a believer in Christ. In this morning, God has called you to a particular mission in life, no less than he has for Paul. Now, you're obviously not going to write a majority of the New Testament. And you may not plant dozens of churches around the Mediterranean. You probably won't be known as one of the most important, greatest Christians ever to live life. But your call and your mission in your life is no less important than his. Because it's your mission. And it's your call. It may feel like you are forgotten. It may be a mother caring for children. It may be toiling in a job that you feel is a dead-end job. It may be you don't have much money in the bank. It may be a, a family situation that is not ideal, a marriage or a situation with kids. It might be caring for an elderly parent. And you feel forgotten and alone and like in a corner of the world. And like the rest of the people around you are doing important, amazing things for God. And you're left to the side. But your calling in your life is no less important for God. God hasn't called you to do great things for him. He's just called you to live the life that he's called you to today for him. What has God called you to do? Well, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago and Justin mentioned it again last week. God has called all of us to, to witness clearly. God has called us to serve lovingly. He's called us to lead boldly in whatever area that we find ourselves in. So the question is, where are you right now? Think about your marriage or lack thereof. Think about your job or school or your relationships, where you live, uh, the passions that you have, the dreams that you have in your life. Those all together, put it together right now for better or for worse, whether you think it's great or you think it's small. That's where God has called you and God's called you to his mission there, exactly right there. And it is your mission. And where has God called you to go? What dreams and passions do you have for the future? Look, we don't know exactly how it will pan out. Paul didn't know exactly how it was going to pan out at this point in time. But he decided this is not only is it God's mission, but I'm going to make that my mission in life. You have a mission. Make his mission your mission right where you are in 
life. We also see from this, from this uh, story that, that we can know part of the mission, right? So, so Paul knows part of the mission. God told him, you're going to go to Jerusalem. Trials and afflictions await you there. And then he's in Jerusalem, and things are going bad, and he's obviously scared. Or otherwise, God wouldn't appear to him and stand beside him and say, take courage. If he wasn't afraid, he wouldn't say, take courage. And he tells him, here's why I take courage. For as you have testified here, so, almost, so also you must do in Rome. Now you are still, again, no different than Paul. We can know what part of the mission that God has called us to, but the other aspect of this is that we only know part of the mission, right? We can know part of the mission. If if you are married today, he has called you to a mission in that marriage, to love your spouse the way Christ has loved the church if, he's, if you are working in a job today, it may be a job that you only have another week or maybe a job you have for 30 more years, but serve God there. If you're a parent, if you're a child, if you're in school, serve God and live on his mission there. You know part of the mission, but again, we only know part. There are things that are going to happen for good and for bad in the future that we just don't know. And that, to me, is both terrifying and exciting. But it should be encouraging because it's his mission. He knows the mission already. His plan, here's a great truth. His plan cannot be thwarted. His plan for you and your life cannot be thwarted. You and your past sin, you and your present doubt, you and your future sins and your future doubt, none of that can thwart God's mission for this world and God's mission for your life. And that should give us a peace and a confidence because there is nothing that God has called us to that he hasn't set us up to have everything that we need in order to fulfill the mission that he has called us to, your past, Your present and your future are all equally not hidden from him. He has seen it all. There is no news to God. There's nothing that happens where he like hears about it on the radio or reads about it online and says, oh man, I didn't know that was going to happen. Not only did he know everything that you were going to do, that you would do in your past, you're doing now and you're going to do in your future. He, not only does he, has he read the script, but he's writing the script. Nothing that you and I can do can thwart. God's mission for this world. We don't understand the plot twists and the way it happens between here and the end, but it's God's masterpiece that he's writing. We don't understand it now, but it will be revealed in the end. Do you sometimes feel a weighty pressure to make it happen, whatever it is, with your life? Do you ever sometimes feel a crippling fear that maybe you've derailed your life and you've missed God's purpose for your life altogether because of decisions that you've made? Here's the good news. History is not your story. It's God's story. It's his mission. Our call from him is simply to jump on board with him, to buckle up and enjoy the ride on his mission. 
Think about what kind of freedom that would bring if we lived that kind of life. If we, if we obeyed God and joined him in his mission in this world and in my life. Think of how it would free us to know that he's in control and he's writing the story. And all I have to do is jump on board with him, buckle in, and enjoy the ride. Think of how that should empower us and give us a source of hidden strength the way it did for Paul. And here's the insurance that allows us in order to do this. This is not a message saying, you guys just need to work hard and do the mission God's called you to do. Here's the assurance that we have. It's the same assurance that Paul had. Notice how the Lord, it said the Lord stood by Paul and he told him to take courage. He didn't just send a message. He came and he stood beside him. He's saying, I'm here with you in it. And that has always been God's assurance when he calls us to follow him on his mission. The assurance is never that circumstances are going to go the way that we want them to. Immediately after God appears before Paul, the circumstances continue to get worse. Things continue to get worse. But here was the promise that he drew hidden strength from. I will be with you. And that has always been his assurance. He said to Isaac, fear not, for I am with you. He said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers, and I will be with you. He said to Moses in the Exodus 3, but I will be with you as he's sending him to Egypt. And then after Moses has, de- has died and Joshua has to lead the people into the promised land, he tells him, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then it's his promise to you. It's not just his promise to Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and to Paul, it's his personal promise to you. Matthew twenty eight twenty. After he gives us the mission to go into all the world and make disciples, what does he say? And he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will be with you until the mountains crack and crumble, till the ocean is swept away, till your life ends and you drop draw your last breath, I will be with you. That's the assurance. God told Paul, have courage. You're going to go to Rome. I will be with you. And Paul knew that he was indestructible until that moment. And you, and whatever mission God has called you to, you are indestructible until you have fulfilled God's purpose for your life. Remember, it's his mission, not ours. And that should be the pillow that we sleep on at night. I am with you. And I will fulfill my promises. We gain strength from knowing that that we are living God's mission for us, if we are living his mission for us. And then we gain strength from knowing that God is active on our behalf. Now, Paul, as he's, this is the the interesting thing in this whole story is, again, there are certain things that Paul can see as this whole plan is unfolding that look like the work of God, right? So he's, He's standing in the, in the, before the council, there's a riot breaking out. And each time the riot breaks out, the Roman tribune comes in and saves him out of that. And then when the Jews are plotting to kill Paul, 
His nephew happens to hear it, and he's able to come and tell him, and he's able to send him to safety with Felix, the governor. So Paul can look at these things and say, man, God, I see you active at work on my behalf. But he didn't always see things that seemed to show that God was active and at work on his behalf. But Paul was able to draw from a hidden source of strength, knowing that God is active on his behalf, no matter what the outside looked like. And that's because Paul was a man of the book. When I say the book, I mean the Bible. Paul was a man of the Bible. And so he knew, first of all, that God is all-powerful. And you and I should know this as well. When forces are, seem to be beyond our control, and think about Paul. At this point, he's at the mercy of forces that are more powerful than him for the rest of his life. He is not going to be able to determine his course in life for the rest of his life. If Felix decides to talk to him that day, he gets to appear before Felix. If Felix doesn't think about him for three or four weeks, he's stuck in prison. If Felix wants to release him, he could have. Otherwise, he just keeps him in jail for two years and passes him on to the next guy. Let it be their problem. But Paul knew that his God was all-powerful. And if you're a believer this morning, your God is all-powerful. Listen to 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. I'm going to say that again. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Your God is all-powerful. Shouldn't that be a source of hidden strength for us when we don't understand what's going on? When we're fearful, when we're afraid about what the future will hold, about what tomorrow will hold? Your God, Christian, is all-powerful. And he is working with all of that power to accomplish his will. And you're included in that believer. He is using all his power to accomplish his will. Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I remember the first time I read that. I'd been a Christian a while. And the churches that I grew up in, God sometimes seems small. Like he was constrained by whether I decide to let him do things or not. But I remember reading that one day saying, that's my God. My God is in heaven and he does all he pleases. If he wants to do it, there's nothing that can stop him or thwart him on the way. And if he has called you to do something in your life, it may be, it may be, doing something great for him. It might be going overseas and becoming a missionary. It might be living through a marriage that is very difficult and tiresome and full of trials. But he will give you the strength. He may change the circumstances or he may not, but he is all powerful to accomplish whatever his purpose is and whatever situation you find yourself in. 
Psalm 135.5, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He is all powerful. Then we see that Paul sees God working in ways that are seen and are obvious. There, and aren't there some ways that, that, are, that, that we can see God working and are obvious? Like, man, God's working. And there are times, quite honestly, right, where it's not obvious and it's unseen. But here's the truth. God has not stopped working when I've stopped seeing how he works. He is always at work. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He doesn't get distracted by his purposes. I get distracted by whatever new thing is on TV or whatever, just online distracting me. God never gets distracted from his purposes. He is working in all his power to make sure that they occur both seen and unseen. We can look here in the book of Acts and we can read ahead and we can see where God is taking Paul. But that was not the way it happened for Paul. Two years he waited in prison in Caesarea. Wondering what is going on. But God was still working in unseen and non-obvious ways. There's a phrase I catch myself using some because I've become Christian vernacular and I'm trying to wean it from my vocabulary because I think it, it's not a bad thing, but I, I don't think it's helpful. And that's like, uh, so-and-so was a God thing. You ever said, you don't have to nod your head. Like I, I find myself saying, oh, oh, that happened and that was a God thing. And that's great. We're, what we're doing is we're recognizing that God was active and working in our life. That's the obvious and seen ways that we see him working. But sometimes when we say that, what we forget is that for the Christian, everything is a God thing. God is at work in everything, always, in ways that we can see and understand and in ways that we don't see and that we don't understand. And Paul knew enough about God to know that God was working even when it didn't seem like it. Even whenever he lacked perspective. And you and I can find a hidden source of strength for the life that God has called us to. If we build our minds, if we renew our minds and remembering that he is always active on our behalf. The all-powerful God is always working in ways that we see and don't see, in ways that we understand, in ways that we don't understand. The third way that we see that Paul gains strength and we can gain strength is from the hope of our resurrection. This is the deepest source of hidden strength for Paul. We know that because we see how often he writes about it in all of his letters. The hope of the resurrection was the deepest source of hidden strength for Paul to undergo the difficulties of life, things that we don't understand, things that are hard. He wrote about it all the time, and then we see him talk about it through this whole time, right? Whenever he's in before the council, he's saying, it's because of the hope and the, and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Then when he stands before Felix, he says, uh, I'm having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. 
So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. We see that the deepest source of hidden strength that Paul was drawing from to give him strength to go through incredibly difficult times whenever things were out of control and ever he was uh, actually suffering in a great deal was the hope of resurrection. We see that because he says in verse, six, in verse 15 when he says, I have a hope that there'll be a resurrection of both just and unjust. So because of that, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. This truth of the hope of the resurrection is what pushed him and held him up when things were difficult. What that means is he's saying that that at the end of everything, the world is done. Whenever I lay my head down and this world wraps up, that my life will not be over. But that that not only while I'm going to live like as some sort of spirit fluttering around in heaven in some different world. Like, I don't know how you picture heaven, right? But this is the way I kind of grew up. And for some reason, this didn't have an appeal to me. I pictured heaven as sort of like clouds. And there was some sort of like band of harps that angels were playing. And there was like people just like standing out like a giant worship service. And that we were like in some sort of like spiritual state, like, like, singing all the time, which is, there was singing in heaven, but they were just singing all the time. And that's all that heaven is. And for some reason that did not sound very appealing to me. I found myself as a teenager sitting in church saying, God, please, please wait until I get married and have sex. And then like, you can do whatever you want to do then. But there's some things I want to experience here. And now before we get to that kind of the harping and stuff up in heaven, but that's not the concept of, of, what the res, of what the future of eternity looks like for the believer. The future of, the, of eternity for the believer means a new heaven and a new earth. Where he remakes earth into what it was meant to be at the very beginning. And we receive new resurrection bodies that will be flesh and blood like Jesus' body whenever he stood before the disciples and he said, feel me, touch me. He ate with them. He told Thomas, you can stick your hand in my side. Feel me. I'm not a ghost. I'm flesh and bones like you are, even though he was somehow different because he was resurrected. They didn't recognize him at first, but yet he was flesh and bones. Like we don't understand how all that works, but we know that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and you will be resurrected with a new heavenly resurrected body filled with the resurrection life of God himself in you. You know what that means? That means all that is wrong is gonna be made right for the believer. Everything that is wrong will be made right. It says when we stand before him, he's gonna wipe. Think of this. Think of the intimacy of this. It says he's gonna wipe every tear from her eyes. All that was sorrow before, all that was pain and suffering, he'll wipe those tears away. All that was wrong will be made right. As beautiful as this earth is, and as wonderful as life can be sometimes, it's also oftentimes dreadful, isn't it? And it's filled with pain. And hanging over all of our heads is the sense of death at the end. But for the believer, we know that death doesn't kill us. It simply frees us and prepares us for the resurrection from the dead where we receive our heavenly, remade, earthly 
bodies filled with the resurrection life of God. For the Christian, it means that our sufferings here are both meaningful and momentary. The sufferings that Paul would go through as he's being imprisoned and on his way to Rome are very real. But they were meaningful because he was fulfilling God's mission for his life. And he was preparing by doing so for the resurrection at the end. He was investing not in his 401k, but he was investing in his eternal life to come. They were meaningful, but they were also momentary. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this and this for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we suffer for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and his mission, we're preparing a weight of glory for our resurrected lives ahead. For the Christian, it means what is wrong will be made right. It means our sufferings are meaningful and momentary. And it means that what even... What kills us won't kill us. What even kills us won't kill us. Uh, can you imagine what kind of confidence Superman must have walked around whenever he was Clark Kent? I mean, he puts the glasses on and nobody suddenly recognizes that he's, that he's Superman and he's wearing the suit and he's being Clark Kent. Can you imagine like any sort of circumstance that he walked into... He walked into every circumstance with absolute and utter confidence. Because unless one of these cats in here has some kryptonite in their pocket, I'm good. There's nothing that they can do to me that's going to knock me down and take me out. And for the believer, we're like that. There is nothing that anyone, including Satan himself, can do to you or to me to kill us. Because what kills us won't even kill us. And these light, momentary afflictions are preparing a weight of glory beyond all comparison. Which tells us that resurrection life is infinitely better than the first life. Resurrection life is infinitely better than the first life. This, I think, is really, really important for us. I have a friend who moved to, and I'll be done soon. I had a friend who moved to, who got an amazing job, and he moved to Silicon Valley. And when he got there, he said that the thing that he and the other people in Silicon Valley had to fight against was they had to fight against the feeling that they were living in paradise because they had great jobs, the economy was amazing, the place was beautiful and everything was great all the time. And he had to keep reminding himself, this is not paradise. And you and I as Christians, even if you don't have that kind of job and you live in Silicon Valley, we live in America in an incredibly prosperous time. You may think, hey, you didn't see my bank account. We live in America in an incredibly prosperous time. 
99% of us in this room have a supercomputer in your pocket that is more powerful than what sent the space shuttle to space. We live in amazing times. And everything around us is telling us this is where to find paradise. This is real life. If your life can just look like this, if your body can look like this, if your bank account can look like this, if your house, if your car, if your clothes, whatever, look like this, this can be paradise. But every single time we grab the ring, it turns into smoke. Resurrection life is infinitely better than the first life. And we have to remember that. Paul said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. In Titus, he talked about the resurrection as being our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we renew our minds in remembering and thinking about how the resurrection is our true hope and that resurrection life is far better than this life. And these are light momentary afflictions are both meaningful but only momentary. And that will spur us on to live life with a clean conscience. It will push us to work for God. It will push us to risk for God. It will, it will sing. The hope of resurrection sings comfort to our soul. The hope of resurrection puts things in perspective. On the flip side, and I'll share this quickly, Paul said that he was, there'll be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And just as resurrection life for the Christian is infinitely better than this life, the second death for the non-believer is infinitely worse than this life. Paul appeared before Felix and it says that he told him of the coming judgment. And it says that Felix was alarmed. But then he said, go away. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, fear is not a reason to become a believer but it's the hearing about the coming judgment should alarm us. And it should alarm us enough to look around and see this world is not the answer and to run into the open arms of Jesus Christ who lovingly and graciously when we do, did not and do not deserve it took that judgment for us. And those of us who are believers, that's the only reason that we can look with positivity towards the future. Because we'll know that we'll be resurrected because he was resurrected. And we know we won't receive judgment because he received my judgment. God provides hidden strength for the life he's called us to. Let's let our minds be renewed knowing that 
God has a mission for us. He will be active on our behalf. And we have a hope of resurrection when it's all said and done with. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.